Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome back, future doctors. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening, for being on this path and being eager to learn, to grow, and to prepare yourself to serve your community as a physician. Dr. Zulman and I often talk about the hurdles and the challenges that we had to overcome in order to get to medical school and through residency and <laughs> become doctors. But you know, when I think about it, I look back and I really think it was worth it, at least for me. It's it's really such a privilege to be able to serve people who are just going through really difficult things in their life and who are in a position where they trust you and you get the opportunity to listen to all of the details of their unique lives and sometimes life challenges. Would you agree, Dr. Z? Has it been worth it for you? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it is rough. <laughs> it is hard. Definitely a lot of obstacles. I've talked about the tears that I shed. Um, but like you said, when I've had those moments when I'm in that room with the patient, I don't know if there's anybody else, maybe for some patients in, in their world, that they open up and share their vulnerability so much with. Mm-hmm. So you get to tap into someone's spirit, someone's, mm-hmm. I mean, their most private areas of their life, which mm-hmm. is so special. And I don't know, it's like, I can't describe it, but when you've created that type of relationship with the patient, it like fills your own spirit where like, yeah. I'm doing some meaningful work here. And, you know, everything that I went through, and sometimes still go through, <laughs> is worth it. It's worth it because I'm glad that I could be that person for this patient. And sometimes it's just giving them hope or whatever it might be. It's just, it's such a special place to be in when you're a practicing physician. Yeah, I agree. And it has been difficult. (laughs) And sometimes it is still difficult, just like you said. But overall, you know, we're in such a unique position to Mm -hmm. be able to help people. And for me, it's definitely worth it. So today, in light of recent events, I want to touch briefly on a topic that's important for you to just be aware of as you prepare yourself for medical school. And especially if you are on the verge of applying to medical school, maybe you just recently applied or you're getting ready to prepare your application for the next cycle. Right now, as we're recording this, it's September of 2023. And just a few months ago, there was a major Supreme Court ruling that made headlines throughout the country because it affects admissions processes at colleges and universities throughout the country, including medical schools. So there were these two cases that the Supreme Court was considering. One was called Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and the other one was called Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina, or UNC. They both boiled down to the same issue, so they were being considered by the court together. Both of these cases resulted from lawsuits against Harvard and UNC by an organization that claimed that considering race as a part of the college admissions process was a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1965. In other words, the organization claimed that considering race as a factor in admissions was unfair and basically a violation of equal rights protections that exist in the Constitution. 
Now, it's important to know that the leader of the organization that filed these lawsuits, the Students for Fair Admissions organization, is a well-known anti-civil rights activist named Edward Bloom. He has been behind many lawsuits that have arguably taken this country backward in terms of racial equality. Now, to kind of touch on what the final ruling was, I have to rewind a little bit and touch on a little bit of history. So for the past 45 years, basically since the mid-1960s in this country, most institutions of higher learning have practiced something called affirmative action. Affirmative action is basically a way of trying to increase opportunities for people who come from disadvantaged groups, including racial minorities. In order to try to level the playing field for many racial minorities, colleges had to consider someone's racial background as part of a larger process that also looked at things like SAT scores, experiences, socioeconomic status, gender, and race. Now, I think affirmative action has helped many racial minorities get opportunities that they did not get many decades ago. It did help to level the playing field for many people who had historically been disadvantaged due to our country's long history of slavery, racism, and some of those other isms. So Dr. Z and I both come from California. California has an interesting history with affirmative action because, interestingly, affirmative action was banned in California back in 1996. There was a ballot proposition that all voters in California got to vote on. It was called Prop 29, and it did end up passing. And what it did was it banned public schools in California, including all of the University of California or UC schools and Cal State schools and any other public institution of higher learning from considering race in their admissions processes. This law took effect in 1998. And that year, following that vote, the enrollment of Latino and Black students at UCLA and UC Berkeley dropped by 40%. That's a huge dip. Since then, the state has spent over half a billion dollars trying to figure out how to boost diversity efforts at its public universities, but it is still not meeting its goals of where it wants to be. Now, I remember hearing about affirmative action back in the early 2000s when I was in college and even when I was applying to medical school. Do you remember anything about that, Dr. Z? Oh, yeah. I I participated in the walkout (laughs) for Prop 29. So I grad, and here I am, I'm going to totally age myself. So I actually graduated high school in 1997. So this really was, you know, a hot topic during that time. So um, I had, I was a senior and I had friends that were in our local um, Cal State. And so we partnered up with them and we actually did the walkout when they were discussing this issue and with everything that was going on. So when the law took into effect into 1998, I was already in college. So again, I was seeing this, like the, mm-hmm. the classes that I was taking, again, the science classes and all that stuff, definitely. I mean, I can't compare it to what it was before because I wasn't in college before, but this definitely affected me because it was the time frame I was actually starting college. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned, a 40% drop in enrollment, that's a big deal, right? And so nowadays, what schools look at is like, okay, let's look at how many, for example, Black and Latino students are graduating from high school in California. Mm -hmm. And so and what percentage of those are then going on to graduate from college? And for other groups, like white students, some Asian Uh, subgroup students, like those rates are very high, like a very high Mm -hmm. proportion of them who graduate from high school go on to college and finish college. 
For Black, Latino, and other underrepresented minority groups, those numbers are lower. And so you're not getting equality when it comes to the chances of someone who graduates from high school going to college and finishing college successfully. And that is unfortunate because it has reverberations in the future lives of these students, right? You're going to earn less money over your lifetime. You're going to have less opportunities over your lifetime if you don't go to college. And also not just going to college, but let's say you go to a community college instead of a four-year university. It also affects your chances at having a higher income and having more professional opportunities in your life. Yeah, so it socially just keeps that group of people in the same place because it's this repetitive cycle. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we need more people of color to go to college because it's not that they're necessarily going to be the ones that are going to be wealthy, but that's how you you get to generation wealth, right? Mm -hmm. That next generation will do better, and then that next generation will do better. So this mm -hmm. this one, Dr. Marina is really talking about, it puts a barrier for those generations to improve so that way they're not in poverty or, you know, and everything else that comes with it. Yeah. And I think many who are proponents of affirmative action would argue that it's not giving favoritism to these mm -hmm. groups. It's just acknowledging that like, look, historically, you have been really trampled on and you mm -hmm. have been denied opportunities in the past. Your family, your parents, your generational line has been denied opportunities because of race. And now we're going to like help encourage you. Like we're, they're not going to like make college easy for you. They're just going to get you there so that you can make the most of your opportunities and thrive and bring your family, you know, lift your family up. And your future generations have them lifted up as well. So yeah, oh, it's yeah. so frustrating. <laughs> I know it really is. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just you know that it doesn't level the playing field. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know if you're listening to this, you probably can relate. But you know, I have a family member right now, and this is like a 4.0 student, but mm -hmm. because financially she cannot not work, she's mm -hmm. working 21 hours a week. Mm -hmm. because it's survival. Yet yeah, she's going, her grades are obviously going to get affected, but she's still, when she applies to college, she's still going to be compared to that other student who probably goes to an elite high school, has never had to work in their life. But yet mm -hmm. if you put them in the classroom, she can still mm -hmm. perform mm -hmm. like that student can. Yeah, exactly. I just exactly. needed to say that. <laughs> yes, no, it's a perfect example because again, like, I mean, everybody comes from different uh, life experiences. And for any of us who are in darker skin, <laughs> we know that race affects our life experience, mm -hmm. right? And so trying to just like pretend that race doesn't exist, I think is a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so going back to the Supreme Court decision. <laughs> so sadly, in June of this year, 2023, the Supreme Court ruled that affirmative action programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In other words, they ruled that affirmative action programs that take race overtly into consideration as part of the admissions process are unconstitutional. So that's a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. So as a result, colleges and universities across the nation, including medical schools, cannot overtly consider race as a factor in their admissions processes. They can still gather data. So, you know, when you fill out your AAMC or your AMCAS 
application or your AA COMAS application for medical school, they might still ask about it and it's optional to put it in there, but they cannot officially consider it as a reason for or against admission, right? So that's a little subtlety in there. So they can still ask and track it over time because it's important, for example, like how did the UC schools know that they had a 40% drop? in Black and Latino student mm-hmm. enrollment, because they were still tracking that data. They just couldn't use it as part of their decision-making process anymore, right? So since the Supreme Court decision, a common question that students are asking is, can I talk about race in my medical school application? Do I have to just avoid mentioning it altogether? Like, how do I, do I not mention my culture or my race or my ethnicity? Like, what's okay and what's not, Right. Luckily, the answer is that you still can talk about it. And in fact, one of the reasons I'm doing this episode is because I want to encourage you to talk about it, right? Just because other people in this world think that we should ignore race does not mean that we should. Because as I mentioned, it is part of our lived experience. It affects so much. It can affect your motivation. It can affect your formative experiences. So if it's part of your story, you should still talk about it. And I should point out, so in the Supreme Court decision, which is like 200 plus pages long, each of the Supreme Court justices gets to kind of write a summary of their opinion and how they voted, right? The Supreme Court ruling was what it was because a majority of the Supreme Court justices voted a certain way, but not all of them agreed. Now, one of the ones that was in the majority opinion, he wrote this. He says, Nothing in this opinion should be constructed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. So even though Justice Roberts voted for this ruling, he was saying, like, you can still consider it if an applicant is talking about how race affected their life and their motivation you can still consider that, right, in the larger context. So in other words, you are at liberty to share whatever you want about your life experiences and how they have influenced your motivation to become a doctor, and we encourage you to do so. Personally, I remember writing about race in my medical school personal statement because it was important. It had affected me and my motivation for medicine, so I was applying in California to a lot of California schools where it had already been banned. But I remember specifically in my personal statement writing about how I was the daughter of Mexican immigrants. I grew up poor. We didn't have health insurance. And my family relied on home remedies and over-the-counter medications that we purchased in Tijuana because we did not have access to health care and we couldn't afford to go to doctors or hospitals. And that was part of my origin story. It motivated me to want to become a doctor that could help my community and help other low-income Latino families like the one that I grew up in. What about you, Dr. Z? Do you remember if you talked about race or ethnic background in your application? Yeah, that was the major part of my application and and my personal statement. I was actually born in Mexico, so I was able to talk about all of that. And I remember going to TJ Tijuana to, to get all my medical care. And I also included coming from a low socioeconomic status as well. So that was also a huge piece. And within, I think, my medical school application, all of my experiences, opportunities fell 
within those lines as too. Things that had to do with my culture, had to do with helping people who were poor like I was and helping them as well. So I think my entire application was very heavily weighted on my culture and my own personal experience. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's going to happen as a result of the Supreme Court ruling, like a lot of schools, they say that they care about diversity, equity and inclusion. They say that it's important to diversify the physician workforce in this country, because as we've talked about before, especially the COVID-19 pandemic really shined a light on racial inequities in healthcare in this country, right? And so it's something that like, with what's happened the last couple of years, a lot of people couldn't ignore it anymore, right? There are racial disparities in health and in healthcare in this country that are very obvious. And so a lot of medical institutions, medical schools, healthcare organizations are starting to care more about this issue and asking like, what can we do to improve diversity among physicians? And also among other medical providers like nurses, nurse practitioners, Mm -hmm. et cetera, right? And because of this Supreme Court ruling, we're going to have to like work around it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Asking questions of like, well, what experiences does this applicant bring to the table that is going to help us serve the communities that need to be served in our state, in our region, in our city, wherever, right? And so let's say you have an institution in California, right? One of the UC medical schools, let's just say as an example. And let's say it's a place like Los Angeles, right? Heavy, heavy Latino population, Spanish speaking population in Los Angeles, right? And so um, the school has to ask itself, it's like, okay, we need doctors who are going to serve the people of Los Angeles, California, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need people who have the skills, the life experiences, the compassion, the understanding to best serve that population, right? Mm -hmm. There is a medical school in California called UC Davis, which is up in Northern California. They do an excellent job. There's actually a paper published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine highlighting how they have managed to get their numbers of Black, Latino, Indigenous students in their medical school at really (laughs) impressive levels. I think something like 30 or 40 percent of their class is Latino, Hispanic. And like, wow, if I had been in a medical school class that was like 30, 40 Latino students, oh my gosh, my experience would have been completely different, right? Don't you think, Dr. Z? So um, there are schools that are doing this very well. And UC Davis is a, is a good example of this. And the way that they're doing it, because they're not allowed to talk about race overtly, mm-hmm. is they are doing a more holistic process where they really say, what are the needs of our population? And how are we going to get students that are going to fill those needs, mm-hmm. right? We don't just want someone who's going to pass their MCAT and or like do well on their MCAT and pass their medical school classes and get into a good residency. It's like, yeah, that that's going to be a good doctor, but we need people specifically who are going to serve our state and our local community. Right. Mm-hmm. And so as you're thinking about how you write your application, if you have anything that you can highlight about your lived experiences, including race and cultural background and language, and if you have been motivated by those experiences to help a particular community in need, 
then you really need to tell that story. You need to highlight that because that I think is going to be a way that many schools are going to start to frame these conversations. It's like, how do we match the medical students that we train to the needs of our population? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's a conversation. I, yeah. I think too, um, within the medical school, though, there will be some courses that are offered as well. Like basically trying to teach their students about culture, how you respect a patient's culture and so forth. But I feel that when you diversify that class too, and I think the medical schools know this, those students are going to learn more by their peers. So when you become a friend with someone that's in your class and you talk to them about your experience, you're actually doing that training, but it's just not formal. And so Mm -hmm. then those students are actually cross-training their peers and probably better than a course or a lecture you sit in. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, you know, I'm going to highlight uh, this quote that this is from the Legal Defense Fund. They have an excellent website and they were opposed to this ruling and they Mm -hmm. have a good summary of the case on their website. But they said this, and this really highlights the importance of different types of diversity, including racial diversity. They say it has been proven time and time again that diversity benefits all students. Research shows that diverse learning environments help all students build skills associated with academic success, including critical thinking, problem-solving ability, student satisfaction and motivation, general knowledge, and intellectual self-confidence. In addition, cross-racial interactions can reduce prejudice and stereotypes, enhance empathy, and open minds. Students of all racial backgrounds benefit from racially diverse learning environments and are better equipped to succeed in today's workplaces and serve today's clientele. So that just really highlights, you know, what you're saying, Dr. Z, that like, it's important. (laughs) Like we are benefiting each other, right? And that's part of the the importance of why we need greater diversity within the physician workforce, not just to serve certain populations, but also to enhance our learning for everyone. Can I just share just something that happened recently that just when you were reading that quote, so where I work at a colleague of mine, we grew up very differently. Um, (laughs) Our backgrounds are very different socioeconomically. We're like on opposite ends when we were, you know, in the way we grew up. And there was a situation with a patient, a doctor, blah, blah, blah. So she's telling me about it. She's all flustered, da, da, da. And, you know, I said, well, and I told her, you know, it could be because of this, this, and this. When I was young, this is what happened to me, and this is what my family went through, and this and that. And then she just stopped herself, and she's like, that would have never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And later that night, she texted me. She's like, I'm so glad I met you. For you to teach me things that I'm not aware about. Aww. And I and you know, and I was like, oh, that's so sweet, right? But but that's what diversity does, right? Yeah. It, that's what it does. Like that approach would have been completely different, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and that's why we need it. And I'm glad that medical schools are hopefully working around in ways that they're seeing this, not just because it's racially motivated, but because mm-hmm. it's for the good of the Mm -hmm. medical community, it's good for the patients, and it's good for the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. I could not agree more. Yeah. So now, of course, if you're listening to this, you are probably well aware that racism and a lot of other isms are alive and well in this world. 
But I personally choose to be an optimist. I choose to believe that we can continue to progress as a society, despite unfortunate decisions like this recent Supreme Court decision. And I really want to emphasize you are needed. The experiences, compassion, and gifts that you can contribute as a future doctor are invaluable. Keep your chin up and keep on working toward your goal of getting to medical school and becoming a physician. Please know that we believe in you and you do have what it takes to get there. You can be part of the change that we need in healthcare today. And like I mentioned, you're not just needed by your future patients, you're needed by medical schools and residency programs and the healthcare workforce as a whole and society as a whole, because diversity benefits everyone in a group. Now, the Supreme Court may have tried to suppress diversity efforts through its ruling this year, but we are not going to let that stop us from our goal of making the physician workforce in this country reflect the faces and experiences of our wonderfully diverse population, and neither should you. Thank you so much for listening and keep on shining. Peace and love, everyone. 